name is Naomi, and I'm 11 years old. <laughs> Me and my friend Carter led a walk out at our elementary school on the 14th. I am a sophomore at Auburn University, and three years ago, I stood exactly where y'all are today and attended my first March for Life. All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States are admonished to draw near and give their attention. Landmark Cases, C-SPAN's special history series, produced in partnership with the National Constitution Center, exploring the human stories and constitutional dramas behind 12 historic Supreme Court decisions. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Good evening and welcome to C-SPAN's Landmark Cases. Tonight's case is Tinker versus Des Moines Independent Community School District. In this 1969 case, the Warren Court, in a 7-2 decision, ruled that students' First Amendment rights to free speech are still protected even when they're at school. For the next 90 minutes, we'll learn more about the history of this case and its significance in our society today in a year when there are lots of students voicing their opinion on issues around the country. Let me introduce our two guests at the table. Mary Beth Tinker is one of the namesakes in the case. She and her brother uh, were, part, were students in 1969 when this case came to the court. And uh, she'll be here to share her personal experience and her work as an adult now uh, to promote student free speech and uh, student press freedom. Thanks for being with us. Nice Thank to you. meet you. Thank you. Good to be here. Eric Jaffe is the chairman of the Federalist Society's Free Speech and Election Law Practice Group. He's been involved in more than 100 cases before the Supreme Court and clerked at one point for Justice Clarence Thomas. Thanks for being our guest tonight. You're so uh, in a nutshell, when you tell young people what this case is all about, what's the headline on it? What do you say? The case grew out of the civil rights movement, really, but in the end, we wore black armbands to school to mourn for the dead in Vietnam in 1965 and to support a Christmas truce that was being called for by Senator Robert Kennedy. And for doing that, we were suspended. The American Civil Liberties Union took the case all the way to the Supreme Court, which ruled in 1969 that neither teachers or students leave their First Amendment rights at the schoolhouse gate. So you've spent a career in First Amendment issues. Why is this particular case important? Well. I mean, I think it's important less for what the specific holding and the details of that holding were than for the, the great rhetoric and language and aspirational nature of the case. It really sort of signals what the First Amendment's about and says uh, young people are not left out of that principle, even if there may be some issues on the margin on how to apply it to them. But I think it at least gives young people something to aim for and to aspire forward to strive for. So. A quick review of the First Amendment uh, of the Bill of Rights. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. In the Tinker case, is a particular clause in the First Amendment that is pertinent, particularly pertinent? Well, indirectly, yes. So uh, no law abridging the freedom of speech. Tinker would clearly uh, fall under the category of freedom of speech. In the particular instance, it was symbolic speech, but the court had already recognized that symbols can convey meaning and argument uh, much as words can. 
Uh, but it was actually the 14th Amendment that applied to the school district, not the first. The 14th Amendment, which incorporated the First Amendment as against the states, because, of course, the First Amendment talks about Congress. But the 14th Amendment applies to the states, and the basic principles of the First Amendment commutatively uh, apply to the states as well now. With regard to schools, before this case came to the court, what was either the law or the custom? Well, uh, there had been the occasional case uh, that uh, upheld uh, sort of student rights, if you will, or at least applied things to schools. So the Barnett case about having to stand for the Pledge of Allegiance uh, if you had an objection, though one might think of that as a religious case as much as a speech case. Um, but in general, schools had a lot of leeway, tons of leeway to restrict kids and to maintain discipline and to do what they wanted. Um, and if you look at someone, you know, Justice Black's opinion, for example, or later opinions by other justices, schools had a, almost a, a, the role of a parent to the children uh, such that they could do what a parent could do and tell them to stop talking for whatever they wanted. So, Mayor Beth Tinker, you, the backdrop of this was you and your brother and fellow students' protests of the Vietnam War. Um, in 1965, do you remember what you were concerned about? What was happening in 65 that brought this to the attention of you as young people? Yes, I remember very well that, as I said, it really grew out of, of the Civil Rights Movement in many ways because right now, today, April 23rd, we're celebrating the 67th anniversary of a school walkout in uh, Moton School in Virginia where Barbara Johns and her fellow students, around 400 students, walked out of school in 1951. And then after that, of course, you had the uh, Brown decision in 1954 and the um, Little Rock Nine was in 1957. And then the Birmingham children with the uh, Birmingham Children's Crusade was in 1963 when almost 2,000 kids marched and rallied and were arrested while Martin Luther King was in jail writing his famous letter from Birmingham jail. And so all of this was very inspiring to us kids who were following this in the news. And um, so by 1965, well, in 1964, something very important happened also involving young people, and that was when Cheney, Schwerner, and, and Goodman were murdered by the Ku Klux Klan. And they were part of a, a movement there of students in Mississippi. The very same day that the students' bodies were discovered, August 4, 1964, off the Gulf of Vietnam, in the Gulf of Tonkin, a U.S. Navy ship claimed that it had been attacked. And as it turns out, it, it likely had not been attacked. But it did not stop the U.S. Congress then from voting almost unanimously to start escalating even more than they were the Vietnam War. So by 1965, there was still plenty going on with the Civil Rights Movement, Selma, and so much more. But now on the news, we saw war, 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 the Vietnam War all the time, the soldiers, the children running from their huts, the body bags, Walter Cronkite announcing you know, the body count today in Vietnam was 10, and day after day we were hearing that by 1965. In fact, in 1965, the numbers were 184,314 U.S. soldiers on the ground fighting the war, and that year, 1,912 deaths alone uh, in Vietnam. And uh, we're going to show you a little bit for all the young people in our audience, and we hope there are lots of you watching tonight in this student free speech case. I'm going to show you a bit of a universal newsreel, which is the way many people got their news back then, uh, talking about some of the protests that were starting to erupt around the country as the war progressed.
anti-war demonstrators protest U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War in mass marches, rallies, and demonstrations. Central Park is the starting point for the parade to the U.N. building. The estimated 125,000 Manhattan marchers include students, housewives, beatnik poets, doctors, businessmen, teachers, priests, and nuns. Makeup and costumes were bizarre. Before the parade, mass draft card burning was urged. Demonstrators claimed 200 cards were burned, but no accurate count could be determined. Reporters and onlookers were jostled away on purpose. Although mostly peaceful, shouted confrontations were frequent and fiery during the course of the march. The anti-war marchers were picketed by anti-anti-war marchers who were hawkish toward the parading doves. And that's just a bit of what was happening domestically in the United States as the war continued to escalate uh, abroad. Uh, so with this backdrop, the students uh, in Des Moines uh, decided to, to express their opinion. We're going to tell you a little bit about how that happened and who the characters were involved. And uh, to learn more about it, it was yourself, your brother John, and Christopher Eckhart, who were, the, who were the defendants in this case. Tell me about you, your brother, and Christopher, how you all came together. It, there was a group of students at Roosevelt High School, and after the march in Washington, some of the students had been there. When they got back to Des Moines, the students had a meeting, and there were some college students and some adults there also, and they talked about what, what they could do in Des Moines to, um, you know, speak up about the war. In 1963, when the children in Birmingham had been murdered by the Ku Klux Klan in the big bombing, James Baldwin sent out a letter along with Bayard Rustin, who was a leader in the Civil Rights Movement, saying we should all wear black armbands to mourn for the dead children. Um, for Carol, Addie Mae, Denise, the, there were four girls who were killed there and two boys actually later on. And so that's what happened around the country. People wore black armbands like this after the children were killed in Birmingham in 1963. I was 10 years old. So... In 1965, then, when the war was building up and building up, there was a suggestion, what about black armbands and wearing those to mourn for the dead? The black armband was a symbol of mourning that went back through history for many, many, many years. And it was a symbol of sadness. And we were all feeling very sad that Christmas about the war. And so that's how the idea what did your parents think of your protest? Did they know about it as it was developing? My father was a Methodist minister, and there was a favorite prayer in our house, which was, Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. And whereas there is hatred, let me sow love. And so that was the way that I was brought up to, um, you know, try to make a more peaceful world and a more just world also. And then later he became involved with Quakers and our whole family became more involved with the Quakers. And so um, my dad didn't want us to wear the armbands necessarily because he said, you know, the principals have a job to do too, and it's not so easy. But my mother understood more. And um, so the students in the Unitarian Church and the Quaker meetings started talking more, and they heard about this idea about the black armbands. And so that's how the idea to be. What can you tell us about the uh, school board at the time or the administration of your school to help set the context for this? The principals heard about the idea and they had a meeting and decided that that would not be allowed to wear black armbands to school. The 
president of the school board, Ora Niffenegger, was quoted in the Des Moines Register saying that our government has made a policy about Vietnam and we must follow it. Well, as I explained to students now in the schools, that's not how democracy works. And we do have a right to criticize the government. And uh, actually, that's how the First Amendment evolved through the years was around war and criticizing the government around war. In addition to the Tinkers and the school board, uh, the other principals in this case will be the Chief Justice Earl Warren and Justice Abe Fortas, who was assigned to write the opinion. As we get started here, what should people know in a big sense about these two justices? Well, for the Chief Justice Warren, um, people should know that he was actually a Republican appointed by Eisenhower, but turned out to be one of the sort of more iconic, more liberal justices and certainly Chief Justices ever to serve on the bench. Uh, who is responsible, directly or indirectly, for some of the most iconic decisions this country's seen. Brown versus Board of Ed, New York Times versus Sullivan, Griswold versus Connecticut, Tinker, of course, uh, and many others. Uh, so really, he's played an outsized role, much criticized by some, much applauded by others. As for Justice uh, Abe Fortas, uh, I guess what's interesting to know is, uh, while he had a fairly short tenure on the court, uh, one of the things that distinguished him was his sort of advocacy for children, oddly enough. Uh, this is one good case, but there are others in the criminal context where he really fought quite hard to get certain procedural rights and certain criminal procedural rights applied to kids who were otherwise treated as wards of the state and really not given very many rights at all. And so it was notable he was uh, an ally of uh, the Chief Justices, but also had a, a special place in his heart for kids' rights. We had a chance to speak with your brother to get some of his perspectives on this story uh, before we watch our first clip of that. Uh, let's go to December 16, 1965, the, the day the protests happened. Walk us through that day. 1965, December 16th. Well, two days earlier, the Des Moines Register had come out with an article, a headline saying that the armbands would be not allowed in the Des Moines schools. And so, of course, I was very, very nervous because I was a shy kid anyway, and I was only 13 years old and in eighth grade, and so people were talking about what to do and what to do, but I decided to go ahead and try to be brave like the other kids that I had seen as examples on the news and things, and so I had an armband, and I just had it on, and, and I picked up my friend Connie, as I usually did on my way to school, and she said, you better take that off, and you're going to get in trouble, and, and so then... Uh, when I got to school, I met, I saw my, one of my favorite teachers, Mr. Moberly, after lunch, and he gave me a pink pass, and I went to the office, and I looked around the office, and I looked at Mrs. Tanner and the vice principal, and they said to take off the armband because it's against the rules. So as I tell the students in the schools now, in the great stand of courage and conviction, I said, okay. And I took off that armband and I gave it to them. But I learned a very important lesson then. You don't have to be the most courageous person in the world. You can be you. You can be scared. You can be shy. And you can still make a difference because that's what happened. You're listening to C-SPAN's Landmark Cases. We will be back in a moment. Well, let's listen to Mary Beth Tinker's brother, John, tell some of his story about the protest. I was uh, getting ready to leave the house and I didn't want to wear it on the street. I was a little concerned for my safety. And as, as I was walking out the door, my dad said, uh, you know, John, I'm not sure you should do that. 
said uh, the school authorities, they think that they need to not permit it and they have a hard job to do and um, I'm just not so sure you should wear it and break that rule that they've made. And I said, well, Dad, uh, this is just a bl black piece of cloth and people are dying every day in Vietnam. And he said, well, then it's a matter of conscience for you. And I said, I guess it is. And he said, well, then I support what you're doing. Then I walked to school. I went to lunch and sat at the uh, usual table with my usual group of friends. And, and uh, some kids came over and started pestering me, just like, oh, Kami, coward, pinko, that kind of thing. And, uh, and then this, this football player that I, I knew who he was, but we weren't really friends. But uh, he came up and he, he, he looked at the kids and he said, he, he saw what was going on. And, and he said to the kids, he said, look, You've got your opinion about the war. John has his opinion about the war. John has a right to his opinion. Leave him alone. I'm thinking, great. <laughs> the phone rang, and the teacher, uh, Mr. Lorry, answered the phone. And, uh, and then he looked at me, and he said, they said, send John Tinker to the office. So I spoke with the principal, Don Wetter, and I explained to him why I was wearing it and why I thought the war was wrong. He said, uh, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to take that armband off. And if you take it off, you go back to class, it's going to be just like nothing happened. And he said, but I don't think you're going to take it off, are you? And I said, no, I'm not. He said, well, then I'm going to have to call your dad and send you home. So pick up the story from there. You took your armband off. Don left his on. Your father was called. What happened next? Well, uh, Chris Eckhart was suspended the same day that I was. Five students were suspended from a district of about 18,000 students. And so then some people started getting very mad at me. I got, a, I got suspended also because the... Um, the girl's advisor said, well, there was a rule against armbands, so even though you took off your armband, you're going to be suspended anyway. So she gave me my suspension notice, and I went home, and people were talking and trying to figure out what to do. It's really a story of journalism also, because we learned what was going on through the newspapers, and they covered it very fairly and very well also. Um, but some people started getting very mad at that point, and some of the other kids who had been planning the event, like uh, Bruce Clark, Chris Singer, also got suspended. And so then the haters started coming out of the woodwork, and some people threw red paint at our house, and they started sending us mail, hate mail, and saying that they were going to hurt my father, and um, that was probably the hardest thing of the whole experience, really. Here's an example of one piece of mail that came to the family. I'm going to turn it over here right on camera. And uh, what was the reaction in your household? Were you all anxious or pretty calm about it? Yes, we were anxious, but again, we had the example of all of these kids in, this, in Mississippi and Alabama who had been you know, bombed and threatened and some of them even killed. And so we kept thinking, well, compared to that, this isn't so bad. At least our house isn't being blown up. At least they're just, you know, throwing red paint at us. And 
and they would call us communists. And uh, my mom would always say, we're not communists, we're Methodists. So we just got through it. Uh, the bravery of our parents and their calm nature helped so much. What, when was the decision made to appeal it to the school board? Well, besides the people that were getting very, very mad at us, there were also supporters. And one of them was a Marine corporal who sent a letter to the editor. I think his name was Harry Corey. And then, of course, the other group that was very supportive was the American Civil Liberties Union. And as I found out later, they go to the Supreme Court more than any organization in the United States. And so one of their members in Iowa named Louise Noun heard about the story and she just didn't think it was fair and so she talked to the other members and and they decided to to come and help us and uh, and and so of course the ACLU said now first you have to try to negotiate and they always try to help people negotiate without going to court and so that's what we did we went back to the school board and had a big meeting and hundreds of people came but the school board would not change their mind and we have a headline from the time that was a five to two vote divided over the issue about student rights. So uh, I'm going to put on screen uh, a, the key dates in the case so you can see how it progressed through the, 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 the process of appeal. The, the school board five to two vote was January 4th, 1966. Remember, the protest had been just in December, late December of 65. And then uh, July 25th of the, that same year, it went to the U.S. District Court to hear the case, and uh, by September 1st of 1956, the complaint was dismissed by the District Court. I'm going to turn to you to ask about process. How does it get from the school board to a U.S. court? Well, somebody files a complaint, obviously, in this case, the ACLU, uh, and files a complaint in the court, uh, and then typically either side makes a motion. And it was at the federal level because it yes. was a First Amendment case? Uh, because it was a viol yes, it was an alleged violation of the Constitution, and there's a statute that would uh, allow for those kinds of cases to be brought in federal court, regardless of the amount of money at stake. Um, and so it gets to go to federal court. It's called federal question jurisdiction. Uh, goes to the judge. The judge makes a decision. I imagine in this case uh, there was some evidence introduced. There was a variety of steps in between. But long story short, the judge makes a decision, writes an opinion, and then people get to appeal. So here's what the court looked like in 1969. We have said the uh, Chief Justice uh, was Earl Warren, appointed by Eisenhower, and the other Eisenhower appointees in the court then, John Marshall Harlan II, William Brennan, and Potter Stewart. Roosevelt appointees still on the court, William uh, Hugo Black and William O. Douglas. Kennedy, Brian Wizer White, and Johnson appointee Thurgood Marshall and Abe Fortas. Overall, what should we know about this court as it's beginning to think about this case? Well, overall, this was, uh, I think, regularly viewed as one of the most uh, liberal, for lack of a better word, it's not a great word, really, but for most liberal courts in that they expanded uh, individual rights, they expanded federal power, they expanded judicial power uh, in lots of different ways. Now, they're responsible for some of the most iconic decisions in recent memory, uh, but also frequently some of the most criticized. But the, the majority, uh, led by Chief Justice Earl Warren uh, and a bunch of the later appointees, including Marshall and Fortas um, and Brennan, of course, uh, really was, were quite powerful in terms of what they did in terms of transforming American law. The court heard the case on November 12, 1968. Uh, what were you doing that day? 
I don't know exactly, but I know that 1968 was a very, very big year for the Vietnam War, and it was one of the worst years in the war. Um, actually, I do know what we we went to St. Louis um, for the for the appeals court case, um, but I don't know. I, it was hard to be very happy about all of the proceedings and everything because of the war. It was just really taking up a lot of our feelings and a lot of our thoughts. And there was so much going on, of course, um, you know, with civil rights and um, just so much. Did uh, anyone from your family go to the Supreme Court when it was heard? Yes, we did go to the Supreme Court. I went and my parents went and um, John wanted to go and he tried to go, but he missed the plane. Um, Chris Eckhart also went. What was that like? Well, it's hard for me to remember a whole lot about it because we had just moved to a, a new city, St. Louis which was a big city to me compared to Des Moines. And so I was trying to adjust to a new high school and it was November uh, when we moved there in the middle of 11th grade. So <clears throat> when we went to the Supreme Court right around that time, I was very taken up with other issues having to do with sort of teenage years, who I was going to spend time with, who I was going to be friends with in class and things like that. So I can barely remember the Supreme Court being there and certainly not very many details about it. Uh, the decision came out on February 24th, 1969. The CBS uh, folks uh, in the news department have been very generous in opening up their archives to us for this series. So we're going to listen as Walter Cronkite announces the Tinker decision on the evening news. The Supreme Court today endorsed the right of student protest so long as the protest does not disrupt order or interfere with the rights of others. But a dissenting justice, Hugo Black, said the ruling begins a revolutionary era of permissiveness fostered by the judiciary. The 7-2 decision upheld the right of three Des Moines teenagers to wear black anti-war armbands to high school. The court said students do not leave their freedoms of speech and expression at the school door. Well, that's one way that the country found out about the decision. How did your family find out about it? I think someone called my school and I came home and I didn't have any idea how important this ruling was going to be either for my life or for the country. Um, it took many years till it really, you know, hit me how important it was. One of the first times was when I was in nursing school some years later and the case was in my nursing school book. How about the school? How are they treating you and your, your siblings at that point? Were they uh, watching well, this with interest? Strangely enough, at my new school, it was pretty much ignored, even when we won the case. And I've thought about it later, thinking that the social studies teacher or someone might have said, hey, you know, something kind of interesting happened to Mary Beth yesterday. But I think they just didn't know what to make of it, and um, so it was pretty much ignored. This is the the majority of uh, that uh, formed the seven in the case, uh, written by uh, Justice Fortas, as we said, the Chief Justice Earl Warren, joined by uh, Douglas, Brennan, White, and Marshall, with two concurrences, Stewart and White. And then there were two dissents, as we heard. They were Justices Black and Justice Harlan. We're going to listen to John Tinker talking about the decision and its impact on him and on the legacy of this decision in his life. To be associated, really humbled by the success of the case and, and what that's meant to student expression in the United States since then, and to, to have my name associated with that case, it's really a humbling experience. And, and, um, and then personally, 
it's been a very enriching uh, experience for me because I'm invited to talk to student groups and I, I speak regularly to um, postgraduate classes of um, prospective principals and administrators and teachers and what an honor. I mean, it's a wonderful thing for me personally, but I, I also think that it's a very good thing for our society to, um, to realize that students in school are learning how we have a democracy, how we make it work. And we make it work to the extent that it works by, by talking about things. In the past two months, there have been national walkouts um, uh, the most recent one just last Friday. Here's a couple of headlines. Texas, Texas school district uh, it, rest uh, threatens, excuse me, to suspend students who take part in gun walkouts. Uh, New York Post on March 14th, school to suspend students who walked out for gun protest. Um, and there are similar ones in other parts of the country. Uh, Ian Zollinger asks us on Twitter, do you think the recent walkouts would qualify as protected speech under the Tinker Test? as they cause lessons to be disrupted and classes canceled? I think as long as the school rules are not focused on one viewpoint or the other uh, and are fairly <clears throat> clear that, no, of course they're disruptive if you're walking out. The consequences may be exaggerated, um, but you're not going to class. You get an absence. It may be nothing more than that. If they try to punish them for the particular viewpoint or punish them beyond what the normal policy for an absence would be, then there might raise some questions. I, I want to point out, by the way, that this cuts both ways. There are cases in New Jersey now of kids wearing Second Amendment shirts who are, trying, are getting punished for ref referring to guns. Sure. Uh, and so the, the Tinker legacy cuts both ways on this guns, gun battle, uh, and those fights are still being had. Uh, obviously, I think if a kid comes to school and says, you know, march for life on their shirt, that, mm -hmm. that seems like a pretty straightforward mm -hmm. Tinker case to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and also students that are speaking up now with these walkouts and rallies, and, and it's so great, so heartening for me to see as a trauma nurse. I've worked many years with children that have been shot. Uh, but I, I think we should also remember that the students are really trying to keep disruption from happening in their schools by ha taking a stand and by you know having the rallies and the walkouts today. They're trying to keep some stability going in their schools where they don't have shootouts going on in their schools, and I admire them for that. So I, I'm pretty sure that's not the disruption Tinker was thinking of, but, but yes, I, student activism of whatever flavor, on whichever side of the issue they come down on, I think we should always encourage. Mm -hmm. As we close here, since we talked about symbolic speech, you can answer the question one uh, Twitter follower had, what's your orange ribbon? Oh, the orange ribbon is um, to uh, memorialize the students who have been shot and as we know, so many of them aren't shot in school, but out in the community. And, um, and I, I really admire the way that students have reached across racial, you know, boundaries to unite together because so many of the students have been shot um, out in the community. And so that's what the orange ribbon is for. And my pin is Thurgood Marshall, who's a hero of mine, who was the attorney with the Brown decision, of course. And his wife gave me a pin with his... Uh, picture on it, so I like to wear it when I'm speaking to students to remind them that he is with us in spirit and he, he wants students to have their rights and use them. A couple of things to tell you as we close here. C-SPAN has a book available. You can find it on our website, cspan.org slash landmark cases. 
with uh, case summaries of the 12 cases that we're featuring in the series this year. Still a few more to go if you're interested in some background. And also special thanks as we close out here to the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia, which has been our partner in this and our first uh, installment of Landmark Cases. Mr. Jaffe, thanks so much for bringing your legal expertise to this conversation. And Mary Beth Tinker, uh, so interesting to have someone who was personally involved in one of our cases at Thank the table. Thank you. It was great to be here. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for watching. You have a good night.